Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take it from us. Welcome into our program. Hope you've had a great week. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've looked after yourselves as best you can and each other. Uh, And we've got Easter this weekend. Can you believe this? It's Easter time. I kind of think Easter sneaks up on people. I know it does to me, and I reckon it's because knows when Easter rolls around. It's not like Christmas where you know that it's December the 25th. Some years it's in March, other times it's in the middle of April, a little bit like this year. It's always exciting though, of course, the kids go on holiday, we've got the school holidays again for children for two weeks, eh? More time away from school, should be fun. Ordinarily, myself and my family would be going away for the weekend, not this time though, and I'm happy to say that is because my older brother, Dear older brother, who I've not seen for close to three years, is over from Brisbane in Australia. So it's very exciting. I'll get to see him and his lovely partner and also uh, my niece, who I've not seen also for three years. Where has the time gone? So that's what I'm looking forward to this Easter, to get some, to spend some really good quality time with family and for my brother, who I've not got to see for a long, long, long time. So who knows? There could even be some tears. There could be some tears when we give each other a big bear hug at our reunion in a couple of days' time. So, yeah, I'm excited about that. Also excited about what we've got for you on our program today. Uh, Later, we'll talk to Melissa Moore from the Pride Project Charitable Trust. How did she throw herself into brightening up her suburb of Clendon in South Auckland? She's got a great story to tell. And our Tuesday panel discussion uh, today will focus on drug checking and also the importance of the establishment of the new Maori Health Authority and how that might impact our Pacific Island community. All of that to come. Uh, Also, remember to uh, leave us a comment on Facebook too, facebook.com. Get to take it from us. And please put out a Sheldon Sheldon shout-out. If there's anyone that you can think of that's been doing really good things in the community, jump on board and leave us a comment on the Facebook page. Uh, but first up, let's talk to Tammy Allen. She's the new Innovations Director for Ember Innovations. Uh, she's moved there from lived experience leaders changing minds, uh, and she was there for a number of years. Uh, Tammy's also currently an appointed member of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission of Aotearoa. Tammy herself spent 20 years of her life struggling with her own mental health and is now driven to make sure no one has the experiences that she has had. It's our uh, pleasure to bring her onto the program. Tammy, thank you so much for talking with us today on Take It From Us. How are you? Uh, awesome, Kent. Really, really great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's nice to hear, actually, someone who sounds optimistic and bright and full of life at the moment because a lot of people, a lot of us are doing it tough, aren't we? Yes, yeah. Look, and, and I think that's why we kind of move in these spaces where we have to <laughs> we have to celebrate optimism when we have it because yes. it's... It's been the last two, three years has been really tough for most of us. Mm. And you've been in the new role now with the Ember for a few weeks. Tell us how it's been. Uh, Mind blowing. Honestly, I have seen, heard acronyms that I've never heard before. I'm looking at a workforce and a space and ideas that are blowing my mind in terms of their scope and possibilities. And I sit there after 20 years of working in mental health thinking, why did we not know that these people and these initiatives and these ideas existed? And how do we bridge that gap between what we know of the mental health system and the problems and the gaps? 
that that has and how this might be able to solve some of that. So that's it's super exciting space. The ideas, <laughs> the ideas you're talking about, are they new ideas or have they just not been heard by the right people before? Well, that's an interesting question because I think when you hear some of these ideas, for me, there's been it's been a bit tangential. So some ideas absolutely I've heard of and I know some of them work and I can see immediately from having worked in this space for 20 years that some of them absolutely won't work. So being able to help some of these innovators and entrepreneurs understand why things will or won't work, when things have been tried before, what went wrong, um, and then bring them up to a skill where their solution might be mm. supported and implemented is one of the one of the jobs I think we have. And then I think there are these new worlds that literally two weeks ago I'd never heard about. So in, in my world, DAO stands for um, the duly authorised officer that is going to, you know, you know, put someone under mm. the Mental Health Act, right? That's, that's part of our system. But in this brand new world, DAO stands for DAO, which is a distributed autonomous um, organisation, which is about decentralised finance and cryptocurrency and how we fund things based on on values and and how the community comes around that. So I'm still, that's a mind-blowing space for me, that there is worlds out here that I didn't know exist that could have potential in maybe some of the funding gaps to provide solutions right. that, you know, we know will work or should work, but there might be different ways of funding it outside of the government system. Now, that for me is an exciting space to start understanding and playing more in. Always talking to people about ideas and innovation and new things and, and new perspectives and ways to, to go about things. What's the difference between a good idea and a good idea that you could use and that you know or think might work? So I suspect, like like I said, I'm only a couple of weeks in, but I suspect that's about impact. So we actually have kind of a few markets that we need to keep happy or find a way of, of bridging that gap. One is obviously with our innovators and our entrepreneurs. One is with the mental health system itself. So being in those places where I'm still making those policy decisions is really important because I can see the gaps. Then, of course, there's our, our Emberites and our Kaimahi and what's important to them and the things that they see in the ground, what is the ideas that I can see that might solve some of their issues. And then we've got this other market that I've never played in before because I've always been in the government funding model place is these investors out there that are willing to put their hands in pretty deep pockets if we can prove that this particular initiative idea is going to have significant impact. Now, for an investor with a deep pocket, what that means is a dinner party conversation where they go, I sold mental health, right? But for us, working in this system, we know that's incredibly complex. We can't promise that we're going to solve the mental health problem. But we could say, with this amount of money, we know that this particular idea has the impact to reduce waiting times by 80% or um, get more people the access to the, the choice of supports that they need that might give a community um, a cultural understanding of what well-being is and provide holistic solutions to them, and that will affect X, Y, Z number of people or this population level. So we can give the nutshell answer to an investor with a deep pocket because they want to create impact, and our job, I think, is to 
provide a model that's going to measure that impact and provide those um, innovators to step up mm. and not just, you know, provide a one-off solution that may or may not work for some people. Well, the general consensus is things do need to change, and you, you've talked about being in, in the environment for about 20 years now. You're also an appointed member of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission of Aotearoa. So much talk about what needs to change with the Mental Health Act. What would you like to see change? With the Mental Health Act, I'd like to, to not be there at all. That would be <laughs> that'll be my wish list. But I'm also pragmatic in that I think we need steps to change that because if you start peeling back the onion of why we're still have a mental health act, you get into that, um, you know, that risk space where there's a great public perception of those of us that have, you know, that are going through uh, or have survived mental health and addiction issues are somehow chronic or acutely enough in a place that we need to be protected or people need to be protected from us. So there's, there's one layer of the onion is public perception of lived experience and... Um, and an understanding of the public that people actually can and do recover from these experiences given the right mm. support and help and choices. The, the, the next kind of right layer is that clinical risk layer in that at the moment we have an environment that, um, one, is we don't spend enough time with people clinically, so we're not, not building those really therapeutic, help, healthy relationships of which I trust you, Kent, you trust me, so therefore I'm not going to... You know, I'm going to do, not going to do anything on your watch because I also want to protect you. If we've only got 15 minutes with people and you're placing heavy restrictions on me, then what's what's to say that I don't trust you enough to go and you know make a decision about that that ends badly? And so, the, in unpacking that clinical risk, we also have to work out how do we clinic, how do we protect our clinicians from being able to spend more time with people, from making those therapeutic, building those therapeutic relationships and then being able to make decisions that may be more risky but we know from a consumer's perspective are less risky because I trust you. So there's that. So when you say what should we do with the Mental Health Act, is I think it's actually a bit of a tiered thing. I think we cannot make um, blanket exclusions for mental health. If we're going to have an act that... Um, decides whether or not someone is capable of making decisions for themselves. Uh, I don't see any difference between someone is capable because of an event or an illness or a disability or other things that are affecting their life. I don't see any difference between the measures we need to put around that capacity as the measures we have to put about the capacity of mental health because what has come with that is an is a misunderstanding that those people in a place that cannot make a decision right now will not be able to make a decision for a long time and that we just know that's simply not true if i don't have the capacity to make a really good decision right now about my care i know who can it might be my best friend it might be someone from my whanau it might be the clinician that i trust and i would like to default my capacity making decision in that very short moment of time to that person yeah. who i trust to make the best decisions on my behalf and then as soon as i know that i'm capable of making a good decision on myself i want that capacity back so mental health act has no place for a long-term restriction on people's ability to really. It should be able to release us. It should be able to... I like to think of it, in my perfect world, as a Mental Health Act being a VIP Act. 
So something that clinicians can use to ensure that you get exactly the type of help help and support you need um, in the moment that you need it, and that's when an act should be applied. It's like Kent, you're really unwell right now, but what you what, what you've told us that you need is X, Y, and Z. Mm. The only way I can access that is I'll put you under the act so that we can get immediate access to that, and then when you can make choices for yourself, we'll immediately release that that part of the legislation. I think if we we flipped we flipped the script a little bit on an act being something that enables us to get the help and support we need in acute moments, I think that's a helpful thing. But if we make it something as it is now that's coercive and restrictive, that kind of act shouldn't exist. That's a detriment to our human rights. Tammy Ellen is with us on Take It From Us. Tammy, tell us a little bit about your own story because for the best part of 20 years you struggled with mental health. What was your experience going through the New Zealand system? Well, it's interesting because my, my first part of my, my experience kind of in my teens and early 20s was in the Australian mental health system where I, you know, I had private health insurance. My, my, I came from a background of privilege, so my parents had private health insurance. And the places that I wound up in when I was really unwell were, you know, how we might imagine the Betty Ford Clinic to be, you know, places of tempura officiousness and you know pottery wheels and you know lovely open wide spaces and so for me I always felt that that was a bit of a fallback when things weren't going well I felt overwhelmed um, when you know suicidal ideation became top of my mind I knew that that was a safe place for me to go and I could have access to that because we paid for that service mm-hmm. when I arrived in New Zealand still kind of being on that pathway of um, it was a real misunderstanding on my behalf that it was somebody else's job to fix me. And I think it took coming to New Zealand and landing in an inpatient unit that had barbed wire fences and padded walls and a plastic mattress in the corner and they locked you in at night and, you know, the the jigsaw puzzles were broken and... The, the nurses were on Facebook at night and really didn't care about you. That that environment really woke me up. Mm. And I thought this is never going to be an environment that I'm going to heal in. That I'm going. These people are never going to be able to fix me because they're they're busy and they're stretched and they're stressed and they're dealing with incredibly acute cases. And who am I to sit there taking up a hospital bed in a place that's not very healing? Um, and, and not not get better. So I guess before we started the call, you said well, was there a mic drop the mic moment? I think there were several, but that was probably my first. Mm. That one, this the system is awful. <laughs> I don't want to be in a place like this again. It's not fixing me, and actually maybe maybe it's not someone else's job to fix me. Yeah. And that was a bit of a bit of an epiphany, right? Mm. that maybe I shouldn't be waiting for the next pill to come along that might make my experience better or, or a better doctor or a better, you know, therapeutic device. And and I tried them all. I mean, part of my experience was surviving ECT and that wasn't particularly helpful. It erased a lot of my childhood memories, which apparently is very rare. Mm. And, um, you know, I was on a huge cocktail of pills and potions at that point, and then on top of that, I was self-medicating with drugs and alcohol in order to kind of, you know, reduce some of that. So, I, I kind of created this 
purgatory where I was just waiting for something to fix this problem um, that I had. So some of that epiphany was, one, these people aren't going to do it for me. I'm going to have to find a way through. Two was um, maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe that problem is external and I need to work out what are the things that have brought me to this place of overwhelm. So it was a real, real stepping back and becoming an observer of my own reactions and my own thoughts to those reactions. And, and then I guess even later when I decided to use that, my experience, my very poor experiences through the health system to say I don't want this to ever happen to anyone else and I mm. entered that system as a consumer advisor uh, early on, part of that was realising that actually the people that work in the system are good even though I had, you know, in my mind, the clinicians were enemies. <laughs> you know, I st when I started working with these people, I went, well, actually, we, we all want the same thing. Nobody starts working in mental health because they're there for fame or fortune. Mm -hmm. They're there because they genuinely have very personal, usually, reasons for being there. And whether it's not their own personal experience, it's usually someone pretty close to them that something didn't work for them and so they felt that they moved into that space to do better. So I think one of, one of the reasons I'm still here is that knowledge that everyone working in mental health wants to be made redundant. We want to create hope for other mm. people. We, wanna, we want to give back the power to those people mm. who who needed and are suffering in order for yeah. them to find nourishing. And then maybe the third epiphany was finding my tribe and my tribe still, even though I'm not in a lived experience role anymore, my tribe is still those of us who have survived, thrived and flourished um, because of our mental health and addiction challenges, not despite them. A mentor once said to me... Um, Tamey, you're enabled by your experiences. You're, you're not disabled by them, and that's something you need to hold on to. And I've taken that mm. through my life in mental health, going what my experiences and what I went through are incredibly valuable insight into making this place, this system, this service, these conversations better for others going through mm. it. Yeah. You've worked as an actress for many years too. People might recognise you from Shortland Street, McLeod's Daughters. I know you from the Brokenwood Mysteries. That's one of my favourites. Uh, but you, I know that you've talked about having a kind of a creative outlook and, and, a, and a, 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 perhaps a unique empathy for what you now do based on your career in the entertainment industry. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I first entered mental health, I came in, you know, with a flash and a bang going, I can change the system, I know what's better, I know what will work. And then, of course, you know, if you've ever been through it or worked in it, you know that it's far more complex than that. And I sat feeling for a couple of years at least like a great imposter in this space where I was just a tick box exercise for their governance models to make sure that there was a consumer at the table, but they were still going to do everything that they were going to do before. And I felt that I had kind of no power and mana at those tables because I wasn't a clinician. I wasn't even mental health trained at all. The only qualification I had for sitting at that table was the fact that I'd been through those services before. So I thought, well, what, what 
do I have? What do I bring that might be able to change things? And my background in entertainment brought many complementary skills to this work. One is understanding storytelling and the impact of telling what a telling a good story can do not just to change people's minds but actually change their behaviors there's a lot of evidence behind if you involve the person or the the group of people whose minds and, and behaviors you want to change in the story itself and play out the narrative to a good result then they will actually go home thinking that they're they've been entertained by a piece of comedy or a play or a film or even a dance piece, um, but actually the, the, it cements maybe a change in attitude or behaviour or the next conversation they might have. So the storytelling part aspect came of it, but the other thing that was really useful from my background in film and television in particular was having um, been a producer and director. So when you are doing those sorts of roles, particularly on a small set, you're, you're, you, you do everything. You know, you are you're making the coffees in the morning, you are dressing the actors, you are setting up the shot, you are writing the script as you are getting the right people. And, you know, it's a real logistical um, environment, really. You have to juggle a lot of people and a lot of pieces of the puzzle to make everything fit. And that's an incredibly useful skill when you step into a health environment where there is... MDT teams full of different skills and knowledge. There is different services that need to be connected. There's different wisdom in lived experience stories that you need to connect with the people who, in hearing that wisdom, might implement a different solution. So I almost became a producer of connecting the right people in the right places for them to be able to make change. So that that was a very direct skill that came from, you know, background in in entertainment, really. And the edutainment piece is, um, just to play on words, really, is that you invite people in to be entertained. You invite people in to uh, be part of a, a virtual reality experience that, or a, a scripted conversation or, um, a, a, or come and watch a play or some stand-up comedy. But the, the, the purpose of the performance itself is to, in, is to actually educate people but you don't tell them that that's why they're coming. But it ends up that they get educated as at the same time that they're entertained. And it's incredibly successful in um, people changing mm. minds and attitudes, yeah. And Tammy, we've established you're an optimist. What are you most... <laughs> what are you most optimistic about in life? What, what am I most optimistic about in life? Potential, mm. I think. Potential. And I think this is why it's such an exciting space to be playing on the outskirts of of government systems and fundings with those who have never been part of those spaces. They wouldn't think in constrained ways. You know, when when I talk to entrepreneurs, when I talk to impact investors, they don't see barriers. They just want to implement solutions. And my knowledge of barriers might help remove some of them for it. So I'm really excited about the potential of um, of what innovation could look like if we start to bridge that gap. Because previous, maybe even previous to me coming on board, but certainly, you know, a couple of years ago, we we might be able to implement some innovative ways of 
um, implementing a service, but generally that funding was for a pilot. So it's not very sustainable. And it doesn't really matter how successful that pilot is and how great the evidence is. You know, we've got a bit of a bower burden mentality when it comes to things like government funding in that they want to they want to shine the next best, you know, they want to fund the next best shiny thing. And then when that's done and they can, you know, showcase that, they'll move on to the next best shiny thing. So I think my challenge in working with maybe some impact investment is saying with some sustainable funding for these people, they'll create their own money as a commercial enterprise. But with your startup funding, this is the impact that it will have on the system. So I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but sure. super excited to um, find out. <laughs> we wish you all the very best and thanks for sharing your story and your knowledge and wisdom with us today on Take It From Us.
You're listening to Take It From Us. My story, your story, our story. Who doesn't like talking heads? This must be known as Naive Melody. Hey, great one. Uh, You're listening to Take It From Us. Let's talk to Melissa Moore, who's from the Pride Project Charitable Trust in Clendon. Uh, Melissa and her colleagues have spruced up the suburb and they've tried to make it as safe as they possibly can for the youth who live there. Melissa, we can't wait to hear your story today and you can tell us about what you've been doing specifically. But first up, what jump-started this desire to bring some pride back to your town? Um, so yeah, the story kind of goes about six years ago because I've been raised in Manudewa and all my family have been here for about five generations. Um, about six years ago, uh, I was just sort of driving through the Clendon Town Centre and just sort of, I guess, saw how our community felt like there were lots of unloved spaces and it was just sort of um, lots of dumping and rubbish everywhere and litter, but then also the social way people were sort of treating each other, where they were treating their kids and things mm. was also pretty antisocial. And um, for me, it was a personal decision of whether just sort of, do I do something about it? Because I actually, I've got four children and we're driving through and they're locking all their doors. They're like, mom, can we go shop somewhere else? Um, and I was like, do we do something about it? Uh, or do I just take my kids and move somewhere else? And yeah, just got a bunch of different stakeholders together and thought, gosh, this can't be it, you know, for money they were, like for our community, especially in Clendon. And yeah, just sort of started doing things. Well, yeah. what have you done? Tell, tell us specifically what you've been able to achieve. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a long story. We've done a lot in a very short period of time. So um, when we first started, we were known as a Clendon Pride Project. And essentially back then... Um, one of the first things we did was work with the police and um, Monaco Beautification Trust and um, Rising Foundation and there's this bank opposite the work and income down at Clendon or MSD and and so you had our people sort of lining up outside almost, you know, going in there and feeling a lot of uh, you know, disempowerment and then they'd look across at this bank and the bank was full of rubbish and racks like the size of cats running up and down and just really just a really gross space and so one of the first things we thought to do was to build a food forest so that's still there to this point we just cleaned it all out and it was just creating love spaces and places that helped to I don't know just inspire people to uh, feel a bit better um, have their mana sort of uplifted a little bit uh, we also worked with a youth group um, and well-known graffiti artist Janine and Charles Williams and so we had this opportunity of this uh, blank wall space and I was approached by food stuffs at the time and I think they wanted us to do like a cute little mural there with kids and I thought now this is our opportunity to really flip the script out here and so um you know food stuffs have some money and so I basically said listen we'll do the mural but I want it to be a fresh start and so yeah there's an amazing mural down there as well um which kind of tells the story of our our community out here in our maunga um in the marae and um yeah just it all weaving together and I just wanted that to be there and I feel like quite cool at night when I go down and see that many things advocacy like to the town centre so now there's a um you know there's a money to a business association which now covers Clendon as well so advocacy in terms of um just uplifting the pride of that whole town centre as a whole um so there was stuff happening at the town centre in terms of placemaking and events, also placemaking and events just to try and flip the script in the community. But then um, what happened was I was offered the opportunity to reactivate a community house that I'm sitting in right now that was locked up and used to be an old um, Housing New Zealand office. And so I thought, oh, I'll give it a shot. So I started running different activations and programs and different things there. And then I guess I fell upon this, I guess, model um, of hope navigation. And so I've got now an army of hope navigators. But in the beginning, well, I was the OG, you know, the original hope navigator. And really what it is is just people with lived experience who have been through a whole ton of stuff in their lives. Like they inspire me so much, our hope navigators. Um, 
you know, trauma, all the different things that have sort of brought them to where they are, overcome addictions, could be suicide ideation, you name it, but they've done that healing piece of work, mm. you know, so they've gone through the healing um, that they've um, wanted to go through or that they needed to go through. And then um, since coming on as Hope Navigators, I'm very passionate. I'm an ex- I was a teacher for 10 years. It's about um, professional development and growth and learning. So we just do tons of development, tons of um, growing and having all the tools in our kids to be able to help our people. So that combination of lived experience mentors with um, all the tools they need to be able to support and engage our whānau to Modi order, because that's our focus, to pathway people to Modi order. That's kind of what started evolving and coming out. And so I was like, man, this is really, this is working for our people, this model of hope navigation. And so that's what they're called, hope navigators. Um, and from there, yeah, I mean, it was a long journey. It was a long journey of um, advocacy, um, just wanting to actually do nice things and be a good human. But I realized quite quickly that you won't get taken seriously unless you have all your uh, crap together. <laughs> so then we had to basically, um, yeah, become a charitable trust. So we went through that process. So we're now called the Pride Project Charitable Trust because I actually believe in this model. So we have all of Manudewa and further, but I believe this model could be actually all throughout Aotearoa and you just find the hope navigators from that community, just build them and grow people and then they can then help and grow their own people in the community because that's a sustainable model and also it's putting our local people in some employment. So, yeah, uh, last year we were basically... Um, able to secure contracts with MSD. So contracted by MSD uh, with a community connector contract. Um, I design, I've designed quite a few programs myself when I've seen the gaps in our community. So one's called Modi Mahi Modi Order, which is pathwaying people into employment. But you can't, you know, you can't just say go and get a job, especially if they're battling an addiction. Um, they might have a depression. They might also have unstable housing and maybe domestic violence going on. We need to look at our people as that holistic whole picture. All those things impact them, you know, like their whare tapa is kind of out of line. So we'll journey and walk with them for three months and then get them into employment after we've done that mana restoration piece of work. Um, and then most recently, um, amongst a ton of other things we've done over the years, um, opened a really excited about opening a new youth hub in Clendon. So to be able to take it back to the town centre was kind of like full circle for me. Yeah, so we've opened a, a youth hub down there called Mangopari, um, which is the Māori word for like hammerhead shark because it's like the most resilient sea creature in the ocean, you know, apparently. So it goes once they're killed, even their flesh still quivers. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so we're just down at the youth centre now. I've got, um, so we had funding. I applied for something um, through Hipotamarangatahi funding through MV, which has now been pathway over to MSD. So it's a pilot. It was, again, um, I guess the work I've done in the community, seeing the gaps for our youth. You can't treat them, you know, you know, like you can't not acknowledge the homes they go back to and the family and the trauma and everything that they're involved in. So for us, I want to see them as people, figure out what makes them tick, what hasn't worked for them in school. So it is an alternative education program, but it's really holistic. Um, we take them on that journey of uncovering and discovering what who they are, like letting them know their strengths and that they have so much to give. And it's been so beautiful. It's only been running for one month, but the fact that you know, you've got these kids, I just cry all the time because I'm like a big baby and I just feel so invested. But, you know, them saying I feel like I've been seen for the first time in my life is just um, pretty rewarding stuff. And also, you know, if you can shift that trajectory and break some of those intergenerational chains and cycles, um, that's a blessing to be a part mm-hmm. of. And we're trying to take the final on the journey with that as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of where things are at for us now. So I kind of started... Um, 
six years ago with myself and a $15,000 grant from the local board um, when I wasn't on the local board, which I also am on the local board now. But, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a bit crazy. Um, so, and then, yeah, now we've, um, yeah, got a team. I think we've got about... Um, you know, 12 employee staff, we've got contractors. And for me, it's just all driven from helping our people how they need to be helped, like keeping it whānau and and our people informed. And, and I spend a lot of my time advocating and fighting in, in the systems and all the other stuff, you know, and working with all the different, the mess and removing all the barriers as much as I possibly can so our people can just get yeah, pathway to Modi order because a lot of the time they just haven't been heard or haven't been seen. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, <laughs> um, what we're up to. We also, with the community house is super activated. We've got um, a Fuddy Toe Toko, which is a free second-hand shop, and we've got a tool library, so our people can come and use the tool library, the lawnmower, and the weedy to take pride in their own patch. I've got a volunteers crew who are amazing, and we've got a food hub. So we do um, home isolation support across the community. Like We've basically been on the ground for lockdown just responding for the last two years, um, as well as still ensuring that we run all of our other programs and help pathway our people to wellbeing. Yes, that's mm. in a nutshell. And tell us one specific case or an example of success that you've seen. Uh, there have been so many, to be honest with you. Um, just people getting their children back. There was one, I guess, is one of my earlier memories um, when we first, first started and there was a whānau that turned up that had their children uplifted off them and they were struggling with methamphetamine addiction and living in their car when they turned up at the house. And so for most people, it's like, whoa, that's pretty hopeless. And a lot of the traditional places you'd go to all the services, people would tell them to go to, um, you know, weren't really, they were just saying, sorry, there's just no housing or whatever. So where we fit quite well and what I'm quite passionate about is I will go into and I will work with Auranga Tamariki and the police and whatever it takes to um, basically pathway our people to success and just advocate, just be that person in their corner. Um, so, yeah, that whānau, like long story short, and it wasn't a short journey, it was months. It's really just you're that continuous person calling them, going, did you turn up to that today? We'll take you on this journey. You've got to be straight with us because like we can't help you if you don't tell us everything. But, yeah, long story short, in the end, um, you go through all the yucky stuff and all the hard stuff, and they committed to their own journey to Modi Order. Um, they became clean. Um, they connected in with a local church. Their kids ended up going to school. They ended up getting a house, and they got their children placed back in their care. Um, and, yeah, so that was um, just a really early story for me to be like, shucks, this can actually work, you know, when you just really advocate, remove the barriers. And for people just to actually see, I think, that someone's not, they're not, you're not going to go anywhere. Like, you fully believe in them. And there's no time frames for us. Like, it's hard sometimes with government contracts and things because it's like, yeah, they want you to fit into boxes. But, like, we're not going anywhere. I've personally in this last week or two been working um, to really advocate for some youth in our community who have got themselves in trouble. But I'm just, you know, turning up to that house day after day, knocking on those doors and um, working with all the services involved and just saying, we're not going anywhere. Like, we're going to keep turning up and knocking on this door. So, yeah, there's there's so many examples of people going into um, houses, into employment. Um, a young girl who I supported for a while myself, and I mean, it even came down to one day I went with her to meet with her at the beach just to pray over her because I just had lost everything. I was like, what else can I do? I can only pray now. So um, she was very suicidal um, and had had a lot of trauma in her life, um, abuse and trauma. And yeah, just to have that hope navigator working alongside her, checking in on her, taking her even just like well-being and things. We actually got her into respite for mental health and 
and um, the journey for her was really to employment, that Māori mahi, but we just had to pause and look after her as a person. But the long story for that one was that, um, yeah, she just got the help she needed. She got a job. She went to respite. She got well. Um, and, yeah, just, just having someone that walked that journey. There's so many stories. It's it's, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty humbling. I think because we just keep going. Like, we don't sort of stop and we just say, okay, who's next? Who's next? And I think the cool thing for me is that our community come to us. Like, they find us. They come to us. So to know that our community are mostly doing the referrals, like self-referrals or telling a friend, and, you know, oh, these fellas will help you, which I often have my phone ringing. My friend said or my neighbour said that you fellas will help me. Um, that speaks volumes, you know, when it's our people coming to us. Well, look, you're an inspiration, Melissa. What, what you're doing is just so welcoming, and thanks for all that you're doing for, for all of us and everybody. And keep mm. keep it rolling. Thanks it's for joining us. Team. Yeah, no, it's all about team. There's a blessing to help our people. But yeah, thank you for having me. Take it from us. That is Melissa Moore. You can get in touch with her and her colleagues at the Pride Project. How inspiring is that story, eh? Her and her colleagues just doing so much good stuff, so many good things for so many people, and it is greatly appreciated. Let's get now to our panel discussion. Joining us on the program is Vito Nonumalo, Principal Advisor Pacifica for Kayanga Order Homes and Communities, and we're also joined by Phil Glazer, Program Lead from the New Zealand Drug Foundation. Thank you both so much for your time today. Vitor, you can go first. What is it you would like to bring to our discussion today? Uh of a Kent and Phil. Um, I guess um, for me, I've done a lot of reflecting kind of post-COVID and as we've gone through COVID, um, one of the things that's actually become really obvious to me is um, just around how genuine our cultural responsiveness actually is after after years of trying to focus on it. And um, so that, that's been, been the thing for me. And I actually think there's been a few lessons as a result of COVID um, in that space as to how well we haven't done um, and, and how we could probably do, do a, a little bit better in that space. Yeah, what, what in particular do you think we need to look at going forward? I mean, knowing that COVID is going to be around for a little while, certainly in the next two or three years, let's say, what is it that you think we could probably do a better job of in, in what you're talking about? Um, I mean, I think we've spent a lot of time basically trying to translate um, mainstream messages and mainstream approaches um, to cater to Pacific and Māori and Pacific audiences. Um, and actually what COVID has shown us is that it, that didn't work particularly well at all. What ended up working was actually taking those resources and actually giving it to community where uh, Māori and Pacific communities actually took responsibility for trying to address um, some of the um, inequities that actually existed out there. And it was actually once we relinquished control that um, we started seeing kind of greater numbers of testing, greater numbers of um, vaccination and improvements in some of those areas. And, and it was actually when we kind of just handed it to those communities. Um, I, I, I suspect the Māori Health Authority is actually also a really good indicator of where this may work really well. We're actually just starting to relinquish control and give it to those communities so that they can actually respond themselves better. Mm. Yeah, Phil, do you have a view on on that? Yeah, I oh, I totally agree, um, and that's definitely something that we're trying to do with our own service as well. And um, something that I like, I really love about our service is that somebody can come in and use the service one day, and then the next day they can volunteer and kind of be on the other side. So it's really about people within the community helping each other. Mm. Tell, tell us, Phil, about what you're doing at the New Zealand Drug Foundation when it comes to trying to make Rick safer by giving people the opportunity to test what they're using. 
So we're running drug checking clinics. So it's not drug testing. Um, drug testing is kind of if someone's doing a urine test at, at work um, and things like that. Uh, this is drug checking. So it's people bringing their drugs. They um, it can be it can be legal. It can be illegal. Um, they bring it in, and then we run it through an FTIR spectrometer machine, which. Um, uh, it's able to match it to a giant library of other drugs and give us a really good idea of what's in it. And then so that means that uh, if someone brings something in, they can know what's in it, if it's cut with anything dangerous, um, if a lot of the times they'll bring in something like MDMA and it ends up being some something completely different, like a synthetic cathinone, which is um, bath salts, commonly called. And a lot of the times they'll bring it in and when they find out it's something that they didn't think it was, they'll often destroy it right there and then in front of us or we'll have a conversation around um, how they can use less and kind of uh, be safer in how they approach it. Mm. So so this is non-judgmental on your part as far as the advice goes? Yeah, completely non-judgmental. It's uh, confidential. We're not allowed to take anyone's information and um, a person's presence at a drug checking clinic isn't be, isn't allowed to be used as evidence against them in court mm. and um, yeah it's completely legal and um, a lot of the times as I said before kind of people who are using the service have been there themselves or people who are running the service and so they kind of they understand and it's a lot of people sharing tips uh, that have worked for them we often ask people who come through the service what's worked for them that we can share to others. So we're kind of constantly trying to update mm. uh, the the advice and conversations we're having. Vito, are you in favour of this approach? Um, I am in favour. I mean, a, a little known fact about me is that um, I've actually spent a good part of my life being a nightclub DJ, so I've seen the impacts of um, of bad drug use in, in nightclubs throughout um, Christchurch and, and Wellington, so I'm wholeheartedly in support of people um, being able to make sure that if they're going to use, which um, is often the case, is that at least making sure that they're using safely as, as possible. Mm, yeah, and, and how would if you'd had access to this? 10, 20 years ago. Um, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't wouldn't have benefited um, having not been um, not used any kind of um, kind of class A recreational drugs. Yeah. Um, um, but the people, the people that you know, of, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I certainly do know people who have 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 used. Um, I, I would like to think that had they had access to this, that their, their lives might have been a little bit different. Mm. Yeah, it certainly it would certainly be viewed as as a, I guess a, a liberal approach. Phil, what what would be what sort of pushback do you guys get? You know, we, is, is there much criticism of this? Surprisingly, we haven't gotten as much pushback as I thought we would. I think it's kind of a good indication that the country's shifting and changing their perspective. And we had things like the cannabis referendum that was really close to a yes vote. Um, so definitely, yeah, I think the country's changing and most of what I've seen is people in support of it um, we often actually get people coming up to us at clinics and they'll say they'll kind of say oh what is this what's drug checking and then when we explain it they'll they'll often say oh I don't use drugs myself but that's so amazing that you do that um, so yeah surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly um, yeah really really good support oh, I was just thinking then imagine what you could do if you started testing people's food Mm. Processed food. <laughs> you, you, and, if, and, if, and if people truly knew what they were putting in their mouths, they might stay away from what they've brought with them too. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, the obvious question, Phil, is is there a double-edged sword here where people who who ordinarily wouldn't be trying or using uh, drugs or banned substances now would feel emboldened to do so? Uh, no, and we can look overseas to, to kind of see how that works. Um, uh, drug checking is what we call a harm reduction service. And so it's, it's not, no one needs to not use drugs. And it's kind of in that um, opinion of we live in a world where drugs and alcohol exist. Um, there'll always be a subset of people that want to use drugs. So we need to give them ways to be safer. And when you look overseas at places like Portugal that have decriminalized drugs, um, other countries that have safe consumption spaces where people can go in and inject drugs under the supervision of a nurse and things like that, um, we often see that drug use itself doesn't change because the people who want to use drugs will use drugs regardless of kind of what's, what's out there. Um, but the harms from drugs drastically reduce. And um, from what we also see in our own clinic is that a lot of people who find out um, that they have something they didn't think they have end up throwing it away as well. Mm. So it can reduce drug use in that sense as well. Yeah. And Vito, do you think if, if we kind of changed our philosophical approach here in New Zealand to a treat a medical as a health-related issue as opposed to a criminal one, we'd make some gains? Um, I mean, definitely, and you know, as, as Phil is talking, I'm, I'm thinking particularly for um, for Māori, and and there are a number of Pacific who would also benefit from this approach as well. So, uh, I mean, the the criminalisation of um, the use of drugs has has kind of unproportionately affected um, brown people in this country. That, uh, that's that's the stark reality, and mm. I mean, this is this is one thing where we would definitely benefit from um, from a, a health approach. Yeah, and I mean, the, the double standard's not lost on me about how we kind of glamorise alcohol. <laughs> and that's that's done more damage as a drug than, than anything else that that you've been talking about, Phil. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, for me, another thing, I, I, I mean, just listening to Phil, another aspect for me that actually sells me on the idea is, um, is the fact we've got people who, who have used in the past and are actually part of the, the service. This is essentially what I've been... Um, what I'm saying was um, giving the resources to the people who are most impacted and actually being understand what the issues are um, to be able to take control and actually make the changes themselves. Uh, Easter coming up, Vito, what have you got planned? Anything good? Um, to, to be honest, a, a long holiday. My, a lot of my, my kind of professional life has revolved around COVID response over the last couple of years. So I'm um, planning, planning a trip home to Wellington to visit the family. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us. I really hope you have a great break and, and well-deserved. How about you, Phil? Anything anything under the wrapped in foil, perhaps, this uh, this coming weekend? Uh, just PlayStation and spend time with my life. <laughs> <laughs> Only the good stuff at Easter, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, look, uh, keep up the great work, Phil. Appreciate you joining us on Take It From Us today, too.
the whole thing. With the with the with the whole thing. Let me see you shit. With the headphones, give me the whole shit. I'ma give you the whole shit. Let me see you walk. With the with the with the whole thing. With the with the with the whole thing. I say yeah, oh yeah. Let me see you walk. You do, I'ma do too. When I move up out it just like this, I don't know why, but I feel like. song is Freedom by John Batiste. All right, that's our program for this week on Take It From Us. Uh, thank you so much to Tammy Allen, to Melissa Moore, to Phil Glazer and to Vitor Nonomalo for contributing to our program today. Special thanks to Karen Murphy for producing the show as always. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Kent Johns, to bring you the program again. Uh, please make sure you get in touch with us via the Facebook page. We do value your input and if you want to just tell us about it all in our community, wherever it is that you are, please leave us a note, facebook.com, get to take it from us. Those were our people, our stories for this week. I hope you have a tremendous Easter and we look forward to your company again next week on Take It From Us. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that... We thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page. Take it from us.
support services. Just part of the service on planetaudio.org.nz.